Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and I would like to formally invite you to come do some riding here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, so today, just a little while ago, Trek released their new Slash, and we wanted to talk about the new bike and offer a few initial impressions. And then we also wanted to take a bit of stock about what this big new release might be able to tell us about where we are in terms of the evolution of bike geometry in the world of mountain bikes. And to this end, we will also be talking about a couple of other bikes, including the Pivot Switchblade and the Rocky Mountain Instinct BC. And so to weigh in on all of the above, I am going to be joined here by our managing editor, Lou Coppa, and our reviewer, Ben Sims. So let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Luke and Ben and try to read the tea leaves a little bit about where we are in terms of the current state of bike geometry. Here we go. Well, gentlemen, we have a new slash here. Actually, Luke and I are looking at it right now. Luke, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Tell us a little bit about a few of the highlights of this redesigned slash, and then we'll obviously get into a bit more of the details here in the conversation. But what do we what do we got? Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar with the Trek slash, it's a their 29 inch enduro bike. They haven't updated it in. I think it's coming up on three years now, which is, as Ben noted in a recent review, basically a different age in the bike world. Comes with a lot of the things we expect of a new bike these days. One noteworthy thing, the travel got increased is now a 160 millimeter rear travel, 170 millimeter front travel bike. Both of those went up by 10 millimeters versus the previous slash. We will go into much, much more detail in our first look on our site, including some initial ride impressions. But apart from the geometry, which is probably going to be our main focus tonight, it's got a lot of cool small features and some that I'm sure will be polarizing. Comes with down tube storage in both the carbon and the alloy frames, which is really sweet. I'm having spent time on some other bikes with that feature. It has a huge down tube protective piece on it, um, which would be really nice for shuttling it. Trek's very uh, polarizing knock block system is coming back in some form. They're calling it knock block 2.0. The fork will now clear the down tube. So the knockbox system is internal, which they say is mostly meant to protect your internally routed cables and the top tube from your bars. But the bottom line is that it offers you more range of motion in terms of the steering radius, and you can use non Bontrager stems, which I'm sure some people will appreciate. But like most bikes these days, one of the biggest aspects of the new slash is its geometry. And the interesting thing about the slash is that way back when it was introduced, our reviewer Noah Bodman reviewed it in, I think he reviewed the 2017 version. And when that bike came out, it was pretty progressive. He called it one of the slackest 29ers on the market, which 
going back and reading his review now is kind of funny because in the low setting, the old slash was just a bit over 65 degrees head to angle, which by today's standards is like, so what? But the interesting thing is, I think maybe because it was fairly progressive when it started, we're not seeing this absolutely black and white change in terms of geometry. And this, along with several other bikes we've been talking about recently, kind of like Ben and I have been talking to each other about like, are we finally starting to see like this geometry battle and war finally plateau or taper off? And so that's kind of what we wanted to talk about in relation to the new slash. Ben, any things that jumped out at you about this slash redesign? One or two things, nothing in particular over and above what Luke said really jumped out at me, but, but encapsulating everything that Luke said about the geometry of the new slash and combining it with just a factoid of the modern world, this thing was racing in Switzerland just a few days ago. Yeah. And so we're talking on a size medium, 1222 millimeter wheelbase, 64 degree head angle, 75 and a half degree effective seat tube angle. These are not wildly long numbers, right? And so this is a race bike under professionals as recently as this weekend. And we're seeing, I guess, maybe what Luke and I, at least in our texts back and forth, I've referred to as kind of peak geometry. And for me, it kind of signals maybe we've plateaued off on the whole long, low, slack thing where everybody's updated for the most part. I mean, there's only just a few bikes, and we'll get to a couple later, that haven't really gone that far yet with the long and slack angles. And yet, this is kind of what we're seeing for race bikes. I mean, it's not that far off of other race bikes that are out there in the Enduro World Series. And so for me, it kind of indicates a uh, kind of a good place that we're in, I think, for geometry, for just kind of the standard enduro, aggressive, all-mountain kind of thing. But what's funny is trail bikes are showing us a lot of the same numbers, too. And they're all kind of staying right in the same place. Like 450 plus or minus 10 millimeters seems to be the reach for a medium on any trail, all-mountain enduro bike you find now, no matter how long it is. So it seems like the industry has gone to a, a pretty stagnant place in that respect, which might be a good thing. Couple thoughts on that. Honestly, when I was, you know, watching kind of the first unveil of this bike, I confess that the thing I just kept thinking is that bike looks really fun. Then I kind of immediately talked to a couple people who were a little bit like meh, and they were specifically, I think, a little meh because of the numbers and like yeah you know it's not all that progressive and again we're going to be getting into this topic but i think ben just a couple thoughts about what you just said one i'm not sure that it would be right to point to a new bike from trek and say ah is this a sign that maybe we're seeing a say mellowing out in terms of geometry since i'm not sure that we've ever looked to trek to see the pushing of the envelope in terms of numbers now again that said this bike looks really fun to me 
I can't wait to ride it tomorrow. I think I'm going to have to start elbowing out our other reviewers before they just like won't let me on this thing. So again, one, I just think it should be pointed out. I don't think we can ever say that Trek has kind of been leading the charge in terms of like the most progressive geometry. I also think the most progressive geometry is not the same thing as sort of equaling the best bike or the most fun bike. What do you think of that, Ben? I think it's a pretty astute argument. That's a good point about Trek not really being an envelope pusher. I mean, we could look at, you know, there's in particular some releases here lately from Comensal and Transition that have really kind of turned me on my ear as far as what a trail all mountain, you know, mini enduro bike can be from a length and slackness perspective. And you're right. Those guys are pushing the envelope in a way that Trek probably doesn't or never will or never has. So I don't have an argument against that per se. What I will say is that Trek is one of the largest bike companies in the world. Yep. You know, and and so is specialized and so is giant. And and so you look at what those three guys are doing in the term of head angles, uh, effective seat tube angles and wheelbases. And you can you can bet that that has been vetted extensively at a corporate level. Right. Good, bad and different. It doesn't matter. It's been vetted at a very, very aggressive level to be effective and good for their business. Luke, back to you. More thoughts on what we're talking about here. Yeah, on my end, like I tend to stay pretty on top of all the new bike releases, and I'm definitely like I'm still relatively new to the industry. I'm much more involved in the ski industry and way into the weeds on that. But having gotten really into mountain biking in the past year and a half, like I've just come to assume that every single new bike is going to be and rightfully is supposed to be longer and slacker to be honest like when i first saw the slash i was like oh like they didn't want to go a little slacker they didn't want to go a little longer but having spent some more time on some not new and new bikes that are kind of going against the grain i think the really interesting thing now is if suppose we are kind of approaching this plateau in terms of how long and slack mountain bikes can get, what could be really interesting is that maybe in a year or two or three, you can look at a 140 millimeter travel trail bike and one of them is going to be exceptionally long and slack, but then maybe this other company actually reverts back a little bit and like, Hey, like not everyone wants this type of ride. And like, I don't believe it's the end all be all solution to make everyone have more fun on a trail. And some people might still want like a plush, plusher platform of a longer travel bike, but they don't want it to feel like a sled that's impossible to turn and that's only fun when it goes fast. And so that's one aspect of the bike industry that I'm really excited about because for the past several years, it feels like no one's been really taking a different approach. It's either you're going really long in slack or you're just going a little long in slack, but there's not that much variety. And I think there's some cool potential. And yeah, I mean, Luke, you bring up kind of the ski side of things. I mean, we've certainly been going through this in the ski industry in terms of rocker profiles. And, you know, it has not been 
categorically true, but often the case is we will see the smaller independent ski manufacturers really kind of pushing the envelope in terms of rockering skis out further and further and further. And I think we've seen there some of the bigger companies taking a more conservative approach. Again, there are exceptions to this, but it does feel like we are very much seeing a similar thing happening in terms of bike geometry. And I would say that I think on the ski side of things, it is less frequently the case where we get a new ski into Blister HQ where we're just like, what on earth are they doing here? Like, I think we are seeing a kind of normalizing a bit. I also think for that reason, maybe it's the case that as a rule, we get on fewer skis where we just think like, that's a wildly stupid rocker profile for the intended purpose of that ski. And I think that's a bit of what we're seeing now in terms of bike geometry. So again, I'm not sure it's fair to point to Trek to say this is evidence that the progressive, expansive nature of bike geo ends now. But I do, I, I'm just definitely not on that side that's going to be disappointed by seeing numbers that aren't just pushing the boundaries out further and further and further. We've been through that on the ski side and it got a little old. Okay, well, I think we will start moving away a little bit from the slash for now in this conversation and very shortly on our website we will be posting our first look and our initial impressions on this thing and literally we start getting time on it tomorrow so again i'm going to elbow luke and eric friesen and dylan wood and the rest of these guys out of my way as long as i can and then I'll probably never see the bike again, realistically, is how this is going to go. So anyway, in keeping with this conversation about geometry, now the Slash is kind of a full-blown enduro bike. We're going to talk about a couple other bikes now that are not what we would categorize as full-blown enduro, but still, I think, kind of germane to this conversation. And on that, Ben, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the Pivot Switchblade that you've been spending time on? Yeah, I've been on the Switchblade for about a month, and you can read on the first look review, which we'll be updating, that Pivot doesn't seem to be wanting to get into, quote-unquote, the geometry wars with this bike. You know, they've already got another enduro bike, the Firebird 2.9, that is ostensibly their sled, right? This bike is not, which is odd because it's what, you know, Ed Masters, Matt Walker are racing at the EWS level, and... You know, the first thing I noticed about the bike when I pulled it out of the box and started putting it together was, and then I threw it in the basement next to my daily driver, which is a uh, Yeti SB55. It looks pretty similar up next to it. I mean, yeah, the one's got a horizontal shock layout, one's got a vertical shock layout, but you don't look at the two bikes and go, oh, wow, one is just a vastly different evolution of geometry and one is old. That didn't necessarily bear itself out on the trail, though. The Switchblade feels considerably more progressive than my current older generation bike. But it's not long. I mean, it's 1193 wheelbase for a medium. It's got a 66-degree head angle and a 75.5-degree seat tube angle. If you look at its main competitors in the field, I would argue that that's probably like the SB130 and the Hightower. Those are both a degree slacker on the head angle, both a degree steeper, both considerably longer, you know, between 15 and 18 millimeters longer in a size medium. 
And yet this bike goes downhill just, just as well as the ones I've ridden on those other companies. It, it's kind of surprising that it doesn't need to be crazy long, crazy slack in order to handle the terrain that I put it on. So what are you attributing that to, Ben? I think part of it is balance. Pivot, in their conversations with me and in their press releases that they sent me for the bike when they were sending us the review bike, talk a lot about balance, about they're really trying to engineer the best quality ride they can. And I'm absolutely sure that there's someone in the world that can go downhill and steep enough terrain to notice a difference between a 66 degree head angle and a 65 degree head angle. I'm not one of those. So where I notice the biggest difference on the bike is in the climbs and in the pedaling on flat ground and then going downhill, I don't notice quite the difference in slackness that I would with another bike. I think it has a lot to do with the short chain stays, the fact that the reach is still relatively lengthy compared to the last generation. It went from 440 to 455, so you're a little more stretched out. And so you're able to get into a good position over the bottom bracket. It really doesn't matter where your front tire needs to be another couple millimeters out there. It was really stable on, on this pretty consistently steep trail that I ride a lot here in Colorado Springs. I feel like almost every 140-ish travel bike I've seen come out is like significantly different than the Switchblade, and namely slacker head angle, probably steeper seat tube angle, longer overall, the usual. And I like got a kick out of talking to Ben about this because it's one of the first kind of test pieces we get to try. Like it's a new bike that is clearly different than I feel like the majority of the bikes in the same model year. And turns out it doesn't suck. <laughs> and I think especially as someone who is still relatively new to this and was kind of just soaking up the the common acceptance that like it it has to be long and slack to be good it's been kind of an awakening for me like especially this summer and riding not the switchblade myself but some other bikes that aren't at the forefront of geometry and turns out biking on them is not impossible and it's still a lot of fun all right well ben final thoughts on the switchblade for now what i want to say about the switchblade is it pedals really well like full stop for any mountain bike and now that i've been able to really dial in the suspension settings on it. I'm really liking the way it descends a lot better than I thought I would for a bike that's a supportive. And so I guess what I would want to tell folks listening to our podcast today is that don't just look at a head angle or a seat tube angle or a wheelbase for these these new 140 millimeter travel bikes and say, well that's not I'm I'm gnarlier than that. I ride harder than that. Because this bike will rip. Ed Masters is ripping it and you know, I'm definitely not on that level and I'm having a great time on it. Pretty surprised at how well it rides for a bike that's not as big as a lot of other bikes in its category. And, and you know, the texting that Luke and I have been doing back and forth, kind of, he's been saying some of the same things about the bike he's on, the Instinct BC. Luke, what do you think? It's been a pretty similar experience. Like, I was, I'm definitely someone who's guilty of like uh, six, 66 degree head angle. That That's not slack enough for me. So I think people like myself should take that into account when uh, judging bikes. But yeah, I've been riding the Instinct BC from Rocky Mountain. It is not a new bike. They came out with the updated Instinct in 2017, I believe. And 
they've basically been very blatantly teasing the fact that they're either updating the instinct or the altitude, but their EWS riders have been on something new that's not the Slayer, and Jesse Malamed won the EWS race on it the other day. This bike, it's actually a size large, which is not the norm for me. I usually prefer medium. I'm five foot eight, but the size large we have, the reach is 454. It's almost a 66 degree head angle. It's not crazy long. And first off, I was kind of split. Like I thought, oh, it's a large, it's either, it's going to be too big for me. But then I looked at the geo, I'm like, oh, it's not slack enough. And turns out it's just worked really, really well. I didn't immediately endo the moment I turned downhill because it's a degree steeper head angle. I actually really like how it pedals. Dylan and Eric are not like quite as high, but I spend most of my time on a pretty inefficient bike, the old specialized enduro. And it was just super easy to get along with. And I was riding just as fast, if not faster, than the old Enduro 27.5, the Revel Rail, which also has more travel, and that was also a size large. Stump Jumper Evo, which is similar amounts of travel, but way slacker and longer. And I think I was probably having just more fun on the Instinct BC because it was really easy to get off the ground. It didn't feel just hard to ride in most scenarios. And yeah, I just like, I need to accept the fact that I'm not like, I'm not pushing the limits of pretty much any modern bike. So might as well get something that I can enjoy the 99% of the time where I'm not trying to scare myself. And you know, maybe this is where we should finally bring in the caveat that Obviously, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here really depends on where you're riding and what kinds of trails. And certainly here in the Gunnison Valley, we're doing often some pretty substantial amount of pedaling and going uphill before we're turning downhill. Depending on who's listening to this and where you tend to be riding and what kind of trails you're hitting all the time, you may have a kind of different take on what we're talking about here. And David Golay, our reviewer in Seattle, talks about this where he's like, where he's doing most of his riding, he's pedaling up fire roads, and then he can kind of just turn and point stuff downhill. So he tends to get along with it can't be too slack and too long for him. And I just accuse him of being lazy. Obvious caveat should go without saying, but before we start getting the like angry emails about this. And it has a lot to do with not just where you ride, but how you ride. If you're the kind of person that just likes to go on a straight line and truck everything on a 29er with a lot of travel, you're not probably crazy concerned with the climbing ability in tight switchbacks and technical situations. But there's a lot of people that don't ride that kind of stuff. And so they like to have a more nimble bike. And let's be very, very clear. You cannot hide wheelbase on a mountain bike. It's kind of like weight in a ski. We talk about this all the time on the ski side here in the year of Ellsworth. It's just hard to, how many times have I read one of you guys write, can't be as stable through chop as this heavier ski? It's just physically impossible. It's the same thing. When you've got a 1,230 millimeter wheelbase bike, it cannot do what an 1180 millimeter wheelbase bike can do and vice versa. Well, I think our work here is close to being done. Ben, do you have any parting thoughts or things you need to tell us about before we sign off? Uh, just an update on our pre-COVID bet. 
that Noah and David and I made oh, yeah. for the women's World Cup downhill this year. My pick, Maureen Cabaru, was just diagnosed with COVID today. We wish her a speedy recovery, and I'm getting fitted for Lycra as we speak. Yeah. What is it? What do you have to do? You have to go... I've got to go race, an XC race. If I can, if I can find one. Uh, well, we have the perfect bike for you. It's a 2006 Specialized Epic. It's in just perfect shape. It's definitely not short and steep. Like, <laughs> I think that's a bike where it would have benefited for a little bit more modern geometry. <laughs> yeah, I've I supermaned over the bars on that thing so many times. So yeah, that's a that's a stark reminder. If it sounds like we've been bashing progressive geometry, let us uh, let us say we are big fans big fans of the evolution of mountain bikes in the last several years, but I still have like this old token from the old days. And yeah, we probably should make Ben ride that thing. Super looking forward to calculating watts per kilogram and all the fun things I used to do on road bikes with that thing. That'll be great. Well, gentlemen, thanks for the conversation. Tomorrow, we start our time on the new Slash, and I think that is all we have for now. So thanks to you two and to everybody else. Be looking soon for our first look on the Slash on our website, and we'll talk to you all real soon. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Luke and Ben for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, please take good care out there. And we will talk to you again next week.